0: This week's Motley Fool Money brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. Also, thanks to Grammarly. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear and effective. Start writing confidently by going to grammarly.com and get 20% off a Grammarly premium account. Global headquarters. This is Motley Full Money. It's the Motley Full Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser, Aaron Bush, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, how are hey. you doing? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk with best selling author Leander Caney about Apple CEO Tim Cook. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin overseas. The NBA is playing preseason games in China, and last week, Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, tweeted support of anti-government protesters in Hong Kong. Suffice to say, this did not go over well with the Chinese government and state-run media. The ripple effects of that one tweet are being felt not just in the business of professional basketball, but in the business world in general. And Aaron Bush, I'll. Start 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 with you. As the NBA and its players and executives wrestle with the extent to which they exercise free speech in and about China, it seems like over the past week, a lot of investors are discovering that the businesses they own shares of are engaged in various levels of self-censorship at the cost of doing business in China.
2: Right. This is a very big topic. and It's interesting, when you think about it, the issue is being framed by the masses as something that's binary. Companies are either choosing to support democratic values or money. And While there is some truth to that, these decisions are actually pretty complex. All of these companies that operate in China have to think through, because over the years, they've grown critically reliant on China in multiple ways. For example, most of Apple's supply chain is in China. Disney has invested Billions of dollars into parks. They have thousands of employees there. Tencent literally just made Activision Blizzard's last game. Um, so saying no to China when <laughs> when they want you to act a certain way is more complicated than just you know money and how it would affect a shareholder or you know some some rich person behind the scenes. Um, if these companies were to Pull out of China. Pretty much every single stakeholder loses. Consumers lose. Suppliers lose. Employees, partners, shareholders. All of them have some downside here. And so, yeah, we are seeing China take advantage of the fact that our companies have grown reliant on their citizens and their their work, their technology, for us to run our business and. They are pressing on the the free speech issue. And so far, uh, a lot of companies are bending the knee,
1: yeah. it seems like in in cases like this, this exposes probably the downside of social media because everybody seems to now be a foreign policy expert when it comes to stuff like this. Butterron's um, point, People like to make this out to be very binary. It is clearly the total opposite. Uh, there's there's a lot of judgment that comes into play here, and I mean we can use Apple as another example here in regard to a mapping app that they pulled off of their store due to some some concerns there that it was, there was credible information that Tim Cook cited that from the Hong Kong police and Apple users in Hong Kong that the app was being used to maliciously target officers for violence to victimize individuals i mean the bottom line is it it was the potential at least was there for it to harm people uh, so to sit there and try to make it out to be binary i think is uh, incredibly naive uh, you can't sit there and hold this against a Company or an entity for one particular decision, particularly when they are clearly exercising judgment in the matters. I mean, I look at a company like Apple, there are more companies at play here. It just is a reminder that you can't look at these things and think it is one way or the other. I mean, it's a unique situation, it's a big world, there are a lot of different viewpoints. It's about figuring out a way to all kind of make it work together.
2: Yeah, but at the end of the day, I do think that we are seeing that there is consequence and risk here for investors. Um, it's sort of a shame that politics has to get in the way of business because what our companies want to do and what you know people in both these companies want to achieve is more alike than different. But. It does seem like right now that politics is at the forefront of a lot of meaningful business decisions.
0: All right, let's bring things closer to home. After five long years, Bed Bath and Beyond shareholders finally got a ray of hope this week in the form of a new CEO, Mark Tritton. Currently the executive vice president and chief merchandising officer at Target, will take up residence in the corner office next month, and shares of Bed Bath and Beyond up thirty percent this week. Ron.
3: Yeah, Mister Tritton has his work cut out for him, but. I like this move quite a bit. 30 years of industry experience. As you said, he got things really done at Target. Responsible for store revamps, private label brands, product sourcing and design. Bed Bath needs all of that. <laughs> company recently announced they'd be closing 60 stores, but they still have around 1,000 stores. I think, and I've said this for quite a while, I think this company can make it, but they need to reduce their footprint, they need to declutter their stores. Um, the stores don't need to be as big as they are. Um, but I do think they can survive. They're still free cash flow positive. Um, they're not a money-losing organization, even even uh, with the results of late. Um, but they've got a lot of work to do. because Obviously, in the world of Amazon and Target and all the other folks, it's a very competitive environment.
0: Like you, I think they can make it. and I think Mark Tritton is the person to get it done. But I also think if he can't, then there's no good reason to keep this business afloat, not when there is increasing competition from, among other places, Triton's most, you know, his current place of employment target.
3: Yeah, agreed. There've been three activist investors that have pushed pretty hard here to both replace the board and get a new CEO in and so mission accomplished there. But now the hard work really begins. And I think you'll start to see these these activists really keep the pressure on rather than ease up now to make sure things move forward. And as you say, if they don't then this company will be will be headed out. Um, there's a fair amount of debt on the books here. I want to say it's close to four billion dollars of debt. So they they need to produce some some cash flow to keep this business afloat. Let's see where it goes from here.
0: Interactive Corp owns 80% of online dating company Match Group. On Friday, IAC announced it plans to spin off all those shares and Jason is it safe to assume they're going to make a tidy little profit off of this? Oh yeah, I mean they'll definitely they'll definitely realize some gains
1: from the transaction. I think that really for investors though, it's exciting because it gives you the opportunity now it gives you the opportunity to own potentially two really good businesses. I mean, for a long time you kind of look at Match or IAC and think, well, maybe I own one or the other, but but perhaps Perhaps not both, because Match makes up uh, such a big part of IAC's business. But IAC, generally speaking, um, I mean this this makes a lot of sense for them. This is an investment in their leadership and what you think they can do with their capital. And, and I mean, so so far, shareholders have benefited quite nicely. The stock's up more than 260 percent over the last three years. Uh, IAC, most most people may recognize uh, Match.com. IEC also has uh, majority interest in Angie Home Services, which is things like Angie's List, uh, among others. Uh, In that, those are the two big revenue drivers for IAC. But IAC, they've stated very clearly they're not in the consolidation business. They're not really looking to become this big media conglomerate. They're more interested in finding new ways to invest their capital. And, you know, shareholders can certainly benefit from that along the way. One of the most recent investments they made. For example, they uh, put $250 million into the car sharing marketplace Turo. Um, and I think that's something that has a lot of potential there. But um, again, I mean, I, th- I think this is one of those things. It was expected. They talked about it in their most recent shareholder letter. They just weren't sure exactly when and how they were going to do it. Um, I think that probably a divestment in Angie will be next. Uh, and then from there, again, it's just betting on leadership in understanding where they see the puck going, the investments they want to make. So far, their track record to Investors want them to hang on to those shares.
2: Right. And from the, the match perspective, I don't think it's that big of a deal what's going on here, but I think it is more good than bad. So, match has been roped in with IAC for several years now. And for most of that time, um, there wasn't much in terms of IAC forcing any behavior on match. But over the past year, um, due to their influence, they released a special dividend. It was $560 million, which which, to some people, I think it raised questions, because this is something that Match would not have done on its own, and it had um, probably negative implications for the balance sheet, and Match has other ways to reinvest. So, it was very much a case of the parent company taking advantage of its successful subsidiary, and now Match will be free of that.
0: Shares of Domino's Pizza up this week, despite the fact that third quarter profits and revenue both came in lower than expected. Domino's also cut revenue guidance. Ron, I can't shake the feeling, this is a rock-solid business, but it really seems like things are slowing down.
3: Yeah, and I was surprised to see the stock up. because They were hurt by growing competition from the folks like Uber Eats, Postmates, Grubhub. They had to replace their three- to five-year forecast with a shorter-term outlook, which brought down revenue targets. So, things are not going as well as they had been. They've done a wonderful job over the last five to 10 years, though.
0: Coming up, we've got a reverse merger that you're not going to believe, but we swear it's true! Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right. Before we get back to the headlines, let's talk about you and your business. Because If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And That's the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers. It's the patchwork quilt of business systems. One for sales, another for inventory, another for accounting. It's inefficient. It takes up too much time, too many resources. You know what I'm going to say next. Yeah, it hurts the bottom line. That's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. It gives you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite you save time, money and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number no. 1 cloud business system. Right now NetSuite's offering you valuable insights with a free guide. It's called 7 Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits and you can find it at netsuite.com/fool. That's netsuite.com/fool. Download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. you got nothing to lose. It's free. Go to netsuite.com. Now, on with the news! As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money! Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Aaron Bush, and Ron Gross. Shares of Roku up 15% this week, in part because billionaire investor Ken Griffin has taken a stake in the streaming TV business. Aaron, Roku is down from its highs last month, but this over the past 12 months, this has been a great stock.
2: Yeah, It's also been probably one of the most volatile stocks I've seen in a while. And I feel like how people in general feel about the company just has to do with when they started looking at it. So The stock got clobbered in late 2018, and then in the first half of this year it nearly quadrupled. Then it fell over <laughs> 40%, and here we are rebounding again on not really much news this week. Um, but when you look at the fundamentals of the business, um, I think the the upward trajectory in general makes sense. Growth has accelerated because consumers are highly engaged, and because Roku has multiple monetization levers. Their platform business, which is like their their operating system that comes automatically in TVs, is scaling rapidly. That will one day have high margins. They continue to take market share. So I don't really think too much about you know these news items that you know X analysts upgraded this company, X fund bought this company. I don't think that really matters doesn't have anything to do with the business but i think just because the stock got hit so hard people are clinging to the to the good news and a quick rebound
0: Shares of Helen of Troy hit an all-time high this week after second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. They also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. Ron, Helen of Troy, not exactly a household name, (laughs) but they make household products, beauty products, uh, brands that people know.
3: OXO brand, Braun, Vicks, Pert, uh, Bedhead. um, It's a really well-run company. Socks up 175% over the last five years. So This is a company that has been getting it done and continues to get done. Three main divisions, housewares up 22%. This quarter, beauty up nine. The weakness was in health and home, which was down ten percent. But they came up against some really tough comps because last time this year, uh, this year, this quarter last year, it was very, very strong. Um, but online now represents about a quarter of sales, so they they know what they're doing from an omni-channel perspective as well. They raised guidance. Um, adjusted earnings were up thirteen percent. They continue
0: to put up really great results. If you're Mark Tritton getting ready to take over Bed Bath and Beyond, maybe put a phone call to the people running Helen of Troy and see how you can get your online sales (laughs) moving higher. Chanticleer Holdings is the parent company of a few fast casual restaurant chains, most famously Hooters. Four years ago, the stock went for $35 a share. Today, it trades for less than a dollar. But management has a plan, guys. (laughs) Chanticleer Holdings announced it plans to merge with Sonnet Biotherapeutics. In a reverse merger, the restaurants will be spun off and the resulting business well, Jason, it'll be the business of developing cancer drugs because if you can sell burgers, beer, and chicken wings, why not pivot to oncology? Well, extremely complimentary businesses, right? Um, I mean, I think. What is this? Michael
1: Scott's heart stopped for a moment thinking this might be the end of Hooters, but rejoice Hooters fans, it is not actually the end of Hooters. And to be clear, Clear is a company that owns several franchises of Hooters. I mean, it is not the actual owner of the Hooters business itself. But to your point, they are strange bedfellows indeed. But really, this is all about the economics behind a reverse merger. And ultimately, it is a small private company merging into a well, let's say, a small public company now. It used to be a lot bigger. But yeah, the the economics behind Chanticleer these days aren't so compelling. But there are some cost savings involved here where Sonnet will will not have to necessarily deal with the process and the expense of compliance of becoming a public company. There's some tax savings that they'll be able to realize as well. There, I believe there is a New Jersey connection there. Both companies have a presence in New Jersey. And perhaps that's how leadership and board members came together Together to ultimately make this move, Uh, but
0: to your point, it does seem very odd on the surface. Yeah, that's what I want to know, Ron. Like, who was the person in the room who said, "Okay, I have an idea for us (laughs) to to cost effectively become a public company," but uh, stay with me because this is going to get a little weird.
3: these reverse mergers do happen, right? You want these companies often back into a public shell that doesn't have anything in it except maybe a little bit of cash sometimes. So in this case, they'll create a public shell by spinning out the restaurants. Sonic can back in, become a public company, which is kind of good for a company like a biotech company that needs to access the capital markets from time to time to continue to raise cash. So they'll be public, and maybe that will help them to issue shares later on, assuming they're progressing with their business model. But you don't see this exact structure
0: every day. Let's get to the stocks on our radar, and our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
3: I got Target, TGT, digging in a bit more, even though the stock is up 70% this year. I think discounters like Target, Dollar General, even Walmart are well-positioned. Last quarter was Target's best quarter performance in years. Same-day fulfillment services are becoming an important part of the business. Digital sales up 34%. Um, online sales now account for more than half of total same-store sales. So, I like what they're doing. Now, Obviously, they just lost their chief merchandise officer, <laughs> I've heard, um, but I think they're going to be OK. I think they're, they're well-positioned.
2: Dan, question about Target? Not really a question, Chris. I, got, I just got a clue run in on something. Yeah. Every year, I uh, think about where I'm going to go holiday shopping, yes. and I always choose not to go to Target because <laughs> they are invariably the first holiday-themed commercial I see on TV every year, and that usually counts them out for my... Christmas and other holiday shopping. Okay.
1: I'll put that down in my research. Dan not shopping. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? You're taking a firm stance there, <laughs> isn't he? That's great. Um, well I mean it's one that everybody's heard of. Lindblad Expeditions, Chris, uh, ticker L I indeed. I'm sorry. Maybe a first for full money, but I'm gonna tell you this is actually a very cool company. They provide expedition cruising and adventure travel services. So if you're looking to go somewhere like let's say Alaska or Antarctica or perhaps the Amazon or any other number of out there places Lindblad Do they is they the have to start with really an can a uh, no but it doesn't hurt <laughs> okay. the cause Ron um, they have a strategic alliance with National Geographic which uh, features co-branding and selling curating content uh, which I, I think really only helps their cause given the nature of natu- uh, natural National Geographics business and that is contracted through 2025 uh, founder and CEO Sven Olaf Lindblad owns 25% of the company. Inside ownership is just under 40%. And While it's admittedly a niche audience, it's still a big market opportunity.
0: Dan, question
1: about Lindblad expeditions? Jason, you staying on the ship, or are you going to head off on some excursions when you are on a Lindblad cruise? (laughs) Oh, man, I got to go explore, baby! Aaron Bush, what are you
0: looking at?
2: I'm looking at another household name, Zscaler. Um, Maybe I brought this up before. If you think about uh, the technology behind work, it's increasingly cloud-based, increasingly mobile-based, and most legacy cybersecurity companies have not been able to adapt well. So Zscaler has built like a native cloud-based, mobile-based uh, cybersecurity product that has made a lot of old systems like firewalls and VPNs completely obsolete. Growing fast, high insider ownership, uh, stock's fallen recently. I like it. And the ticker? ZS. Dan. So, when I hear Z scaler, I think of a fancy fish scaler and not cybersecurity. But hey, thanks, Aaron! <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Is there a question in there? <laughs> Three stocks, I'm Dan? i my chances. You here, got man. one you
0: want to add to your watch list? <laughs> I'm with my man, JMo, and that I'm taking Lindblad! Ryan Gross, Jason Moser, Aaron Boish, guys, thanks for being here! Thanks, Thank you, you. Up next, a conversation with best-selling author Leander Caney about Apple CEO Tim Cook. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Leander Caney is the author of several New York Times bestsellers. His latest is Tim Cook, the genius who took Apple to the next level. Leander joins me now from San Francisco. Thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. There are a bunch of things in the book I want to get to, particularly Tim Cook's career before Apple and his rise to being CEO. But I want to start with his relationship with the President of the United States. and This begins in late 2016, after Donald Trump has been elected, but before he took the oath of office. Tim Cook is part of a group of tech CEOs that meet with him at Trump Tower. A little surprising, because during the election, Cook supported Hillary Clinton, and some of his own employees questioned why he would go to a meeting with Trump. And Tim Cook wrote an internal message to Apple employees and said, I've never found being on the sideline a successful place to be. The way that you influence these issues is to be in the arena. It is natural to compare a CEO to his or her predecessor, particularly so when that predecessor happens to be Steve Jobs. But I'm curious, are you at all surprised at how adept Tim Cook appears to be at the art of politics? Because for all of Steve Jobs' talent and skill, it's hard for me to picture him doing this as effectively as Tim Cook seems to be.
4: I absolutely agree. Yeah, that's totally very true. I think jobs was is irascible, the right word, you know, he's a bit too irascible, I think to to play politics. and and Tim Cook, I think, definitely is. A politician at heart, you know, he knows um, how to get along with um, people that he probably wouldn't normally get along with, and I think uh, that's the case with uh, with President Trump. I think he seems, you know, I, I don't think it's a natural alliance, um, but it's an expedient one, um, and I think that um, you know he's 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 done it very very well. He hasn't he doesn't seem to have had any pushback from his own employees. Um, which hasn't been the case with some other companies, and you know there've been protests inside Google and inside Microsoft for some of their policies and some of the people that they're working with, that their employees don't like. But Apple seems to have skirted that, or Tim Cook seems to have skirted that, uh, and he seems to be keeping President Trump happy too. So I think he just, he seems to be very adept at it.
0: Let's get to your book. Tim Cook grew up in Alabama. His dad worked in a shipyard. His mom worked at a local pharmacy. How did his family and growing up in the South help to shape his worldview?
4: Uh, it um, turned him into a, <laughs> into a lefty. <laughs> I think you know. Um, it's kind of funny. He uh, it has a lot, I think, to do with him being gay too. You know, I think um, he was an outsider in growing up in Alabama. But he kept, you know, again, like you know, almost a similar situation with 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 the president. He kept it very quiet. He was in the closet. He didn't come out as gay. But it must have. It must have affected his um his worldview, and i think uh, he talked to, at one time in, in a in a speech about coming across a um the clan burning a cross um on one of the neighbor's lawns and when he was out riding his bike late one night and how he shouted at them to stop and uh, one of them raised his hood and it was uh, a local pastor a local deacon um not the church that he went to but you know it's one of his neighbors and That he said a very profound effect on his his worldview, and um, it instilled in him this um, desire to use uh, commerce, companies, businesses, enterprises um, as a force for change. And this has definitely been his uh, defined his tenure for the last several years at Apple since he took over from Steve Jobs. Is you know using Apple the company. To advance a progressive agenda uh, in terms of the environment, um, in terms of inclusion and the diversity, um, and things like that. So, uh, and this comes from his 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 childhood in in Alabama and the things that he saw, the inequality, the um, the struggle. I think, uh, and his desire to want to you know to to change that. After college, he goes to work for IBM for. 12 years.
0: Interesting, in part, because IBM is, in some ways, considering they're both large tech companies, in some ways, the antithesis of Apple, particularly at that point in time. Right. Yeah, exactly. How did his work at IBM inform his experience at Apple?
4: Well, that's where he learned his trade. That's where he learned how to be this incredible, incredibly effective operations master of operations. Uh, and, uh, you know, IBM at the time was a pioneer of what they call just-in-time manufacturing, which, which was taken from the car industry, where the um, companies would not build, uh, they more or less built computers to order. Uh, and IBM was, this is new at the time, and IBM was definitely a pioneer of that. And it was extremely effective. And, and, and in contrast to how Apple at the time, Apple was, I, IBM was firing on all cylinders, but Apple was really in deep, deep trouble uh, this is just before Steve Jobs came back to take over the company, mainly because they were either making um, too many computers, and they were sitting on in warehouses full of computers that nobody was buying, or they made too few. If they had a hit product, they couldn't keep up, they couldn't make them in time. And Tim Cook at IBM learned how to how to run factories to ma- to, to manage this really beautifully efficiently. And this is what Steve Jobs needed and wanted. So, he recruited Tim Cook. Um, Actually, from a by this time, Cook uh, Cook had moved on to he spent some time at Compaq and then another and another company, but he recruited him to build this kind of system for Apple. And this is what why they've been so successful because it was you know he created this this monster.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting in part because Tim Cook uh, has this reputation and it's probably well earned of being a very good operator, um, the model of stability. And that's what's interesting to me, anyway, about his move to Apple. He joins Apple in 1998, which is pretty close to the bottom for that company's right. fortunes. And at the time, as you said, he's a VP at Compaq. He's got a good job at a stable company. He has friends who are telling him not to go. Why do you think he made the leap anyway?
4: Because uh, Steve Jobs mesmerized him. He had he was in Steve Jobs' pocket in the first five minutes. Uh, or on board, you know. Rather, he he just he 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 was he was seduced by by Jobs, um, and uh, he felt that Jobs was you know a legend, obviously in Silicon Valley, um, and it was just a great opportunity. He 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 bought into the vision. He felt um, like jobs that the company could be saved and that he could play a crucial role in that. So he was on board like almost immediately. And, and he's actually talked about this a couple of times and said that it wasn't a rational decision, you know, like rationally on paper, if he'd written out in a list of pros and cons, I mean, there would be hardly any pros. It would just be a long list of cons. Um, and like you said, you know, the company was nearly, it was at the bottom. It was, it was about six months from bankruptcy. Uh, so they had, you know, they had a, a lot to do, but, um, you know, I think, uh, you know with the benefit of hindsight it's obviously been super successful it's been unbelievably successful but yeah at the time it was a very very risky move but i think you know jobs is very very persuasive but jobs is also very rational too i think as well and i think that definitely appeals to to, uh, to cook's character i think they he laid out a plan that was that was smart that was rational smart and you know achievable
0: before we get to cook assuming the job in the corner office in terms of his relationship with Steve Jobs, what do you think Cook learned from Steve Jobs that he genuinely did not know, given all of his experience in the tech industry to that point?
4: Well, I would say taking a risk. Um, I think he learned how to take a risk from Jobs, and I think you know taking the jo- going to work for Steve Jobs was was his first you know risk that he took. I think Cook is very um, he's I don't know if cautious is the right word, but he's. Um, He's, uh, what is, of course, it sounds too, um, it, it makes him sound like he's he's not willing to take risks, which he is, but he takes calculated risks. I think, you know, one of the things that's defined Steve Jobs' career was this ability to, to bet the farm time and time again. Um, he took, Jobs took lots and lots of risks um, and, you know, almost went bankrupt and almost went out of business and various companies he had, like Next, almost went down the pan and, um, And I think that was, that's defined, you know, sort of Jobs' career, this ability to, to, to to bet the farm, bet the company um, on one product after another. And I think, I don't think Cook has that same um, character. I don't think Cook wants to do that. But I think he learned that from Jobs the ability to, to, you know, to, to, to step into the darkness and say, okay, let's just see how it goes.
0: In August 2011, Tim Cook becomes CEO. Uh, Shortly thereafter, Steve Jobs dies. and I think it's worth remembering that there was genuine skepticism about Tim Cook as the leader of this company, and not just because he was following a visionary like Steve Jobs. That's obviously an incredibly tough act to follow. But when you think about that point in time, and you think about the skepticism of Tim Cook, is there anything that stands out to you as being completely warranted, as a legitimate question, or on the flip side, something that was completely unfair.
4: Well, I think the skepticism at the time was completely unfair. I think people had um, the reaction, you know, when when it was announced that he was going to take over as CEO, was I think one of sort of genuine shock and horror. It was like almost everybody. I don't think anybody came out in Cook's corner at that time. I don't think many. There weren't many people defending him. Um, And that has a lot to do with him being a cipher. You know, people just didn't know about him. Um, He'd been kept behind Apple's iron curtain um, for almost his entire career. I think he gave about three, maybe four interviews the entire time he was there. Um, And they were very early on, and they were to like specialist trade publications, like um, what one of them was called, like, uh, you know, a customer supply chain management magazine. So, stuff like that, you know, it it was very, very, he had no public face. And so people were saying, "Oh, Johnny Ive, who's the chief designer, he should be the one to be the CEO." You know, he's obviously uh, more creative, always creative, as Steve Jobs. But I don't think you know what what they didn't know is that is that behind the what they didn't know what Steve Jobs knew, which is that you know behind the scenes, Cook was extremely effective in all sorts of different ways. And in fact, um, Jobs had been grooming him um, for perhaps uh, a decade. To uh, as a possible CEO uh, successor candidate, and and be putting him in all these different positions, so he could learn all these different parts of the business. So he had this reputation as being like a boring operations guy, but in fact, he'd run all kinds of things inside Apple. He'd run the Macintosh division. He'd run hardware. He'd run uh, the stores. Uh, he'd run sales for a long time. So he'd had a pretty good sort of across the board. Um, apprenticeship to be, you know, a, a potential successor to Jobs, and Jobs had, had set that up, but he didn't tell anybody. You know, he did, Jobs is very secretive. He does, he, he operates on a need-to-know basis. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of skepticism when when he took over, and I think that came mostly from the fact that he just was not, a, he was not a, not a known quantity. People dismissed him as a boring operations guy, and I think he's not a boring operations guy. He's he is quite a risk taker. Look at when he came out as gay um, that was something that he did not have to do. And yet I think it sort of reset the public perception of him as somebody who was his own man. And, and if you look now, you know, seven years later, I mean, Apple is extraordinarily successful. It's much, much bigger than it was when, when jobs took over. And people are kind of dismissive of that and say, well, you know, it has a lot to do with the momentum that jobs set up. And that might've been true, I think in the first couple of years, but now it's definitely, Tim Cook's company, and it has been for quite a few years. And the fact that it's firing on all cylinders, I think, should be—it's unfair to attribute that to Steve Jobs anymore. You know, it's—it's. It's, it, this is Tim Cook and Tim Cook's doing.
0: What are some areas that Apple might disrupt? We'll get into that next. So stay right here. This is Motley Full Money. All right, before we get back to the interview, a quick shout-out to Grammarly. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. They encourage everyone, even the best students and the top professionals, to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish even more of their goals. They help people show their best self through writing. and It's available across platforms, including online browser extension, Desktop Editor and Mobile Keyboard Checker. You can find it on multiple browsers like Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. You can find it on platforms like iOS, Android, Windows, Mac. Their free product, which is really good, reviews critical spelling and grammar. But Grammarly Premium looks out for all of that, plus structure, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, readability for different occasions because let's face it we write for different things. You might be writing an essay for school or maybe a business proposal or a blog post. Grammarly is so easy to use. I've been using it. Like I said the free it's it's a good the free one's good. The free one's good. The premium just gives you a lot more. And I need all the help I can get when I'm writing, particularly when it comes to advanced punctuation, which I'm generally terrible at. So, whether you're looking to polish up your resume or just look smarter in your emails at work, do yourself a favor. Check out Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com/fool and get 20% off your Grammarly Premium account today. That's Grammarly.com/fool for 20% off your Grammarly Premium account. All right, let's get back to Leander Caney. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill in studio talking with best-selling author Leander Caney. Apple was the first company to hit the one trillion dollar mark in terms of market cap. And when you just think about the impact that the iPod and the iPhone have had on the music industry and the mobile phone industry, I mean, these are truly revolutionary products. So Apple has set the bar incredibly high. Um, and yet it's natural to ask the question, can this company continue to innovate in the same way? You're someone who studies this company very closely. When we're looking at areas that Apple might disrupt, where should we be looking?
4: Well, they have um, you know some secretive skunk work projects um, in um, behind the scenes and one of the one of the biggest ones is the, the Apple car, uh, which is rumored. To be Project Titan, it's known as internally, and it's rumored to be, you know, an, an autonomous electric car. Um, this has been, you know, gestating for several years already, and it could well be several years before we see it. Um, but that, I think, has the potential to be an extremely disruptive product if they're successful in bringing that out. Um, you know, I mean, um, autonomous cars could rewire everything from tourism to commuting to travel to, um, you know, how people design cities, where they buy real estate. Um, it would be an extremely um, disruptive product. Uh, so, we'll see about that. But I think, you know, more immediately, the Apple Watch, you know, is a, is a pretty good example, I think, of... of, um, of I think it's, it, it's, a, it's a huge hit product. It's a massive hit product. It's much bigger than both the Mac and the iPad right now. It's much bigger than the iPod ever was, um, and it has the potential to open up this whole new category of, you know, computing, which is based on health and fitness, monitoring your body, telling you how what your body is up to, um, what you should be doing, when you should be standing, when you should be, how you slept. Um, it's like a little, uh, you know, like in a hospital, one of those those charts, the, the machines, they hook up to you, you know, that tells you your heartbeat and all your other vitals. But it's strapped to your wrist. And I think they're only just really getting started. I mean, there's rumors about um, adding sensors to do blood sugar tracking. Um, and of course, this would be hugely um, beneficial for, for people with diabetes. Um, they potentially wouldn't have to prick themselves and measure their blood anymore. But it would also be useful to, to everybody, you know, for for the entire population. I mean if you get a war if you eat a donut and then you get a warning from your watch that your blood sugars, you know, <laughs> spiking, it may create, you know, better behaviors for people to manage their diets and for, for dieting, for, for for how they eat, how much they eat, when they eat. Um and there's a potential to add a lot more sensors, You know, all different kinds of health and fitness centres. Um, uh, Johnny, and I said to me once that you know, who wouldn't want to wear, who wouldn't want to wear a device that might one day save your life? And we're already seeing reports of this. You know, people with the, with the with the heart rate, uh, with the EKG, you know, and people um, finding out that they have um, undiagnosed heart conditions. And of course, there's are small numbers now, but um, I think you know the the Apple Watch is a, is a great great product, and I think it has huge potential. That's why I eat donuts,
0: Leander. So my so my blood sugar will spike. That's why I eat them. I don't need a watch to tell me that.
4: I know who doesn't. I know exactly. I totally agree. Um,
0: last thing, and then I'll let you go. It's worth remembering that Tim Cook was interim CEO at Apple a couple of times before he got the job full time. So while there was skepticism about him being CEO. There was no surprise. Even when Steve Jobs was the CEO, there came a point in time when we all knew who was going to be next. Tim Cook is 58 years old. He appears to be in very good health. There is no reason to think he won't be CEO for the next 10 years. I am curious, though. Though, is there any talk that you're aware of regarding who follows him? Like, who is Tim Cook's Tim Cook?
4: Ah, good question. Right? So, yeah. Well. It seems to be um, his right hand man at the moment uh, is Jeff Williams, um, who is a long time operations executive, also worked at uh, IBM, um, has been working with Tim Cook uh, almost since the get go. I think he joined a couple of years after Tim Cook, um, but has been one of his close colleagues um, through that whole um, period when Jobs was CEO. And now it looks like he's been groomed to be the successor. He has Moved on from operations, and now he's in charge of uh, well. In fact, the Apple Watch. He's the head of the Apple Watch, uh, and in fact, I think he just got put in charge of all hardware. So um, he it looks like is being um, trained to you know to one day t- one day possibly take over the uh, the CEO role. But it's an open question. You know, they're, they're, very, they're very, Apple's very very secretive, and it's uh, it doesn't. Um, Drop any clues at all. I mean, this has never been addressed publicly. It's just you know, this is just people speculating from reading the tea leaves and seeing what they're up to. Um, but I think for sure, I mean, like a lot of people at the moment, I mean, people are still skeptical of Tim Cook. It's I, I think which is kind of crazy because I think he has a, a clear track record, um, and people are still. Skeptical about him and say that he's ruining the company. I mean, you see this in comments all the time, uh, and on Twitter and you know all over the web. And people say that you know someone like Elon Musk should should take over the company. They want they want to see someone like Elon Musk because he's kind of like Steve Jobs. He's he's brash and flashy and um, extremely uh, ambitious. Uh, and and uh, you know doing doing crazy futuristic stuff, but I think he he wouldn't be a good CEO for a company like Apple. I think someone like Tim Cook is, and I think possibly someone like Jeff Williams is a good successor to him too.
0: The book is Tim Cook: The Genius Who Took Apple to the Next Level. It is available everywhere you find books. So get yourself a copy. Leander Candy. thank you so much for being here.
4: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Mac Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.